Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Welcome to episode 18 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. It is great to have you here listening to this episode. The purpose of this podcast is to bridge literacy research into practice, and I am thrilled that so many of you are willing to take time out of your day, time out of your life, and if you're listening to this episode as it's released, time out of your summer to learn a bit about literacy research. So whether you are a new listener or one that's been around for a while now, Thank you very much for joining us. I truly think you'll enjoy today's episode and that it will be able to help you support readers within your classroom. Read-alouds are a common practice in elementary classrooms, but do students benefit from this practice and how can teachers become better at implementing read-alouds in their classroom? My guests today have researched these and similar questions for over a decade. Their names are Dr. Doris Baker and Dr. Lena Santoro. In this episode, we discuss a recent study they published in the journal Reading and Writing about a read-aloud intervention they completed with first graders. Dr. Baker is an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and Dr. Santoro is a research associate and curriculum developer with the Center on Teaching and Learning at the University of Oregon. We have a great discussion about previous read-aloud research, the elements of a good read-aloud, what a structural layered approach is, and what it could look like with a read-aloud, and of course we end with ideas for how you can use read-aloud in your classroom. In the show notes there are several resources you can check out to learn more about the read-aloud work of Dr. Baker and Dr. Santoro, so make sure to take a look at those. This is a great discussion with lots of takeaways for your classroom. After the conversation, make sure to stick around for my two cents. Enjoy the show. Doctors Doris Baker and Lena Santoro, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you for having us. For having us here. I'm very excited to have you both on the podcast. Today we're talking about supporting student vocabulary through read-alouds. And you both have been involved in read-aloud research for over a decade now. How did you each become interested in studying read-alouds? And then how did you get connected to work together? Our uh, work began early on with a team of researchers that included David Chard, Scott Baker, Hank Fien, and Doris, myself. And we began with this basic question um, about our interest in how teachers used what's called read-aloud time in the classroom. Um, Several of us um, were our former teachers before we became researchers, and we we really, um, you know, knew of this time um, of shared book reading in a classroom setting is is a very special time for students. Um, It's exciting, it's engaging, and we as researchers thought it would be interesting to learn more about that. And so that was really the focus and initial question we had from a research perspective. It's does, what is this about and does it work with kids? Um, 
and then I'll, I'll let Doris add on, but we, we included Doris on our team because we started to do more work in classrooms with English learners. And we really wanted to be able to um, ensure that how we were thinking about and structuring uh, read alouds worked for a wide variety of students. And so we partnered with Doris. Yeah, and actually I was uh, in my, doing my uh, PhD studies at the time, I was a student, and so I immediately uh, uh, became attracted to the program because of um, the simplicity, but also the complexity of the stories that uh, want to convey uh, information that we want students to learn and also uh, interpret uh, fiction books based on that information they were learning during the read aloud. So I, I was fascinated by that and particularly with the background of um, having been a single language learner myself and then also having a large body uh, of students who were second language learners, trying to understand how they could also participate actively in a read aloud. That sometimes it's quite complex because of the vocabulary or the uh, fiction books used. Yeah, I think that's something that's really interesting of of with children's you know storybooks or, or books that a teacher might do a read aloud is sometimes we in, we interpret those to be overly simplistic, but in in fact they can have great plot and great vocabulary. And what I appreciate is is your work in trying to take the read aloud, which is a common common practice that teachers do, and just take it up a notch so that teachers can really get some good uh, instructional outcomes out of it. You noted before the episode that uh, this, the materials that we're going to be talking about are actually available online. Would one of you like to describe where they're available and then why they would be there in the, in the first place, why you made that effort to uh, make it accessible for teachers? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for asking us about that. We um, feel strongly about our work to not only do the research, but to translate it into practice and make sure that the materials we use in our studies, uh, specifically if we have good outcomes, <laughs> we want them to be, uh, the materials to be available to, to teachers and, 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 our, you know, and parents too, now that we are talking um, these days about providing instruction from home and in a distance learning environment, that's really important for both parents and teachers to have access to what was used in the study. Um, so we essentially took what we used in the study that we'll talk about today, um, packaged them into a set of materials, a kit, and um, have provided them online for teachers to either download themselves um, and to obtain a PDF copy of of the, the lessons, or they can purchase a printed version. Um, and to find um, to find those those resources and read aloud materials, um, teachers can go to the University of Oregon um, and look under the Dibbles uh, a website, and specifically, um, see it's the marketplace um, and read aloud. Um, so the 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 hyperlink, the web link is is a little bit lengthy, but I think if you search the term University of Oregon. Dibbles, Marketplace, Read Aloud, you'll get there. And I know um, you'll be providing that, that link and reference um, as part of the release of this podcast. So yeah, we appreciate that. Yes, I'll make sure to link to those materials in the show notes. Let's get some foundations underway and talk about previous research on Read Alouds. Just for a definition, so everybody here is on the same page, how do you define a Read Aloud? I think it's a great question and perfect place to start. Um, and I, and I, what's important about understanding a read aloud, I think centrally, is that the adult is doing the reading aloud. 
Um, so we're not talking about students reading text aloud. We're talking about the adults. Um, and in our case, we're going to talk about teachers today, but this also would apply to parents. So it's a teacher or parent reading a text aloud to a student. Um, and then what differs slightly is your purpose, your instructional purpose. So sometimes um, teachers use a read aloud or parents for that matter, we'll use a read aloud um, to just enjoy enjoy a text or, or to um, in the classroom to transition maybe from um, lunch back into the classroom. Um, they might take some time to, to do a read aloud. So that has you know its own instructional purpose. And then we also, um, from an instructional perspective, have the purpose of really using read alouds to, to teach and leverage skills around comprehension, around vocabulary. And so in that case, you have a very intentional focus. Um, so I think central to when we talk about read alouds, what's important is that adult reading, because we're, we're in many cases, most often we're using text that is above the reading level of a student um, because we want students to hear rich vocabulary that they may not necessarily be able to read or decode yet and we want to expose them to to those words um, complex con con uh, concepts for, for great rich comprehension and so in that case we're doing we're having the adult facilitate and adult read the text I didn't realize this until I started reading this study and then the, the original study and, and looking into your work a bit more, but that read-alouds are actually very well researched in the, the literature. There's uh, several meta-analyses, so, so studies of, of groups of read-aloud studies. Uh, so there was the National Early Literacy Panel that looked at it, What Works Clearinghouse has looked at Swanson et al. 2011. Um, so they've all analyzed uh, read-alouds. What were some of the outcomes from these large-scale meta-analyses on, on read-alouds for students? Yeah, that's right. Two of those uh, meta-analyses, the National Early Literacy Panel and the What Works Clearinghouse, looked at students in an age group. Um, one, the National Early Literacy Panel looked at students birth through five. Um, and then we had the What Works Clearinghouse look at a set of studies that um, engaged with students from grades three, uh, excuse me, ages three through five. Um, and so we're looking at very young students um, within the context of those studies. And what was found across both of those meta-analysis that there was a positive effect um, for oral language. Um, and with the National Early Literacy Panel, also general print awareness. Um, and the What Works Clearinghouse um, found a potentially positive effect for both early reading and writing. And so collectively, these two uh, meta-analysis, these two reviews are, are suggestive of the benefit that a read aloud has in terms of this early literacy development that, that, were, that were interesting. And you mentioned three. There are three. There's a third, a third study uh, meta-analysis that's uh, that's important for our work, and and that was conducted by Swanson and colleagues in, in 2011, and that study specifically was looking at um, the delivery of read-alouds within a classroom setting. So unlike the, the meta-analysis that focused on um, work with young students, um, some of those young students were in a home environment, some were in a, a preschool environment, the Swanson and, uh, um, colleagues uh, looked at this classroom environment. So studies that were conducted with whole groups of kids um, and elementary grade learners. 
And what was interesting in terms of outcomes from, from Swanson um, and colleagues when they reviewed um, the studies, I think there were 29 total. So pretty, like as you were saying, a pretty you know, significant amount to look at. Um, they're finding a small effect on oral language. So we're seeing that oral language piece um, becoming important. That was seen with the early, uh, the preschool grade studies. And we're also finding effects on um, print concepts vocabulary and comprehension. And so now we are truly seeing, um, and that works some instructional benefit to the use of read alouds, where we do um, have, have some evidence of academic outcomes for kids. That foundation of oral language, especially in the, the I mean, everyone needs that oral language foundation to read effectively, but uh, that's something I, I have realized more as I've been doing my, my doc studies is, oral language is such a big deal when it comes to building great readers. And, and so sometimes a teacher might think, well, the, the students aren't reading the text per se, I'm reading it, but you know, you're able to still provide access to those concept language and sentence structures to be able to give them that foundation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I think as we continue our discussion, that oral language piece is, a, is something to pay attention to. So what other studies exist on read-alouds? I know you both have done previous research on it. Is there any other work that you feel you need to point out that wasn't necessarily included in the, in the meta-analyses? Yeah, I, I think I would point out um, it, not, well, you could look at specific studies, but the work in three main areas. So there have been read aloud studies that are showing us that there's value to the use of a before, during, and after structure for reading aloud. Um, and those studies show that they were, um, that there was benefit in terms of helping kids improve vocabulary and comprehension. Um, we have also a set of studies that we know of that specifically focus on vocabulary, for example, and that's very um, important to, to, to know, one, in the connection to oral language, as we've been talking about, but also that, that um, text and um, reading aloud text is a vehicle to, to learning those words, teaching those, those rich words that then in the future will anchor um, higher order comprehension. And so those studies were looking at different ways to teach vocabulary within the context of a read aloud. Um, so for example, how you might teach a word before you read a text or embed it during and then review after. Um, and then finally, we have a, a set of studies that looked at engagement. And so what are the best practices around how you keep kids and from our perspective, a whole classroom of kids um, engaged in, in read aloud time when a, an, an adult or a teacher is reading to students. And so those studies are pointing out the importance, again, of that before, during, after piece, but also the use of question asking and answering um, and really driving a discussion, using that read aloud text to drive a discussion um, to build and construct comprehension. Um, and so I think of that as, as really an engagement piece. So that's the cluster of, of studies that, that that sort of informed our work. And then we had, I, we can shift into something I think is really important to add to that. And that is the value of integrating strategies <laughs> into, into read aloud instruction. And so not only did we draw on existing work around read alouds, but from an instructional perspective, we look to the National Reading Panel, for example, to, to help inform us on what is best practice around um, strategy instruction for, for 
comprehension, we, we wanted to apply those things in the read aloud. So that would be things like summarizing a text, asking questions, um, having kids work collaboratively within the context of a read aloud. Those are examples. And then finally, um, from the strategy side, we really used um, Michael Coyne's work. He's at the University of of Connecticut and colleagues, they've done a lot of work on instructional design and the importance of the explicitness um, in instruction. Um, and, and we followed their principles to create um, instruction that really, we weren't having kids guess at what we were doing, we were really teaching it. We were really having teachers model and work with kids and, and present things in a, a very explicit, systematic manner. So I think when you ask me about what the, the Read Out Loud research says, I think there's those two pieces. There's the one on what the studies are saying, and then there's that other part that we looked at related to, to strategies and high quality instruction. That's super informative. My next question was, what are the features of effective read aloud instruction? Oh. So let me let me see if I can guess from you know your literature view some of those effective features. So the before, during, and after component That's of dividing right. your instruction up that's what that way, um, using using questions. So using questions, asking questions, answering questions to drive the comprehension instruction um, engagement, making sure that the instruction is engaging to the students and that you can maximize your outcomes there. Uh, integrating strategies and then making your instruction designed well and making sure it's explicit so students don't have to guess what you're trying to teach. You're being very clear and very direct and gradually releasing that to the students. Are there any other effective practices? Is that is that kind I of think you summarized it very well? Very yeah, and summarizing yeah. is yeah. A, a highly effective practice. Um, and with little kids, we we tackle that through retelling. I, I would uh, also suggest that asking WH questions, so really making sure that uh, the questions teachers ask are not just yes-no, but they really require students to express and expand their um, their answers, and that way builds also their language proficiency. So. Yes, uh, Dr. Baker, I'm so glad you brought that up about the the types of questions that teachers ask is is major. I mean, that's that's something we can't we can't pass over. So let's let's get to the study. This study that you're doing that we're talking about today was actually a replication of an earlier study. So what were the goals of this particular study and why did you feel that you needed to replicate a study that you'd already published? You know, was it five or six years ago? I think it was 2014. Yeah, uh, it was actually uh, 2013. 2013. And, uh, yeah, and, and the reason we wanted to replicate that study was because uh, that study was done in just one region of the country and the majority of the students were very uh, similar. So they were all white and it was an, um, in a context where there was not a lot of diversity. So, uh, and it was a smaller study too. We only had 13 schools compared to here where we have 39 schools. So uh, we wanted to see if the uh, replicating study in a different setting, so in a different region, uh, with a more diverse population and with a larger number of students, uh, we would get the same results. So, so this study was conducted in uh, the Mid-Atlantic region and it uh, had more than 630 students, 39 classrooms uh, in 13 schools, different schools. So it was a very large study. Excellent. So it's, so it's twofold where you're investigating a more diverse population and then trying to scale up. Um, that, that can be tricky. That's difficult. And I'm sure with implementing that, you know, keep helping with the 39 classrooms, 
you know, making sure those teachers were trained and that there was fidelity in, in how they implemented the intervention, you know, that can be, that can be challenging. So then uh, you're using a treatment group and then a comparison group to sort of measure different outcomes. Uh, so what did instruction look like for the, the, the uh, treatment group that was using the read aloud instruction? And then what was the structure of the comparison uh, condition, just so our listeners can kind of get a feel for the, the structure of the study? Yeah, yeah. So we randomly assigned uh, schools to the treatment or control condition, and then uh, students in the treatment, uh, teachers in the treatment condition, they received, of course, the training. And then uh, the idea was to do twenty-four books, twelve narrative, and twelve expository. Um, and then in the comparison group, we gave teachers the books but we didn't give them any of the training or any of the teacher guides so they could use the books as they wished while for the treatment condition students had to follow our script and we trained them on that and uh, um, we helped them with the implementation of the um, curriculum excellent and i really appreciated the um the the notion that you gave the books also to the control classrooms that you know, we, we try to keep it, you know, sort of teacher friendly, so we don't go too far off in, into the, the weeds of, you know, conducting studies. But it's important that your control condition that you're not sort of setting it up for for failure, right? That you're giving the control group sort of an equal opportunity to perform, so they had access to the same books. Uh, just the difference was was that the treatment teachers, the ones doing the read alouds, were using the books, uh, you know, in uh, with the structure that that, you know, that you train them to use. So um, what was what was the structure of the read aloud um, condition? Yeah, so so these units were kind of like two week units and uh, well, two or three weeks, uh, but, and then um, the first week, usually students were introduced to the nonfiction books and then the second week to the uh, fiction books. So in a way, uh, and, and this is one of the features that I, I loved about this program, was that the nonfiction was instructing and kind of helping students understand the fiction. Uh, because, you know, as, as you can imagine, sometimes uh, fiction books are fun and, uh, you know, are the first books that teachers choose to, to give, um, you know, young children or to read, to read to young children. But many times, like, if, particularly if you're an English learner or maybe low language, it's hard to understand where the, the fun of the book or where kind of like what the gist of the book is. Or, what the ending was and why it was like that and so uh and it's usually and, and, and in order to understand that you can go back to the nonfiction, like the information usually writers use the information about a certain concept or about animals or whatever to really create and write the fiction books you know so uh, by structuring it, it where students first learn the information and then learn the fiction they were able to understand the stories much better in a more natural setting than having the teacher explain the story to the kids so they could understand it. Um, so, so, so that was one of the structures, not so two weeks. And then um, there were a series of activities that students would do, just like you know, I was saying before, uh, pre-reading, um, pre during reading, and after reading. And uh, depending on the type of book, the activities were different. No? So, for example, for nonfiction, you have a, a KWL chart type um, um, structure you know, where students talked about uh, what they knew about this particular concept and then during the reading 
what it was changing, what they were learning, and then after the reading, what they learned and uh, what, how that changed their initial conception of, of the construct. And for a uh, fiction book, it was more like what happened, uh, who is the character, so a description of the, the main character in the book, and then what happened first, what happened next, and what happened in the end. No? And uh, this structure uh, was the same for all the books. Whether, I mean, for the nonfiction, you had the, you know, uh, for example, the animals, what animals eat, where they live, and um, how do they look. And for the nonfiction, non um, uh, for the fiction books, it was always what happened first, what happened next, and what happened at the end, and who is the main character. So there was no, like, guessing from the kids, from the children about what really the teacher was asking or what the teacher wanted to know, because the structure was the same, what the discussion was the rich part, no? because then you could expand on uh, descriptions and adjectives and uh, uh, storytelling and things like that. To give us an idea of dosage, how long were the teachers doing the actual read aloud part? And then, um, and then I'm sure the, the explicit instruction part, I'm, I'm sure came in with, with them completing sort of the connected activities, but was there you know, sort of uh, think alouds, or was there, uh, you know, what types of instruction were happening during the actual read aloud component? Yeah, the, so so the, the instruction, we asked the teachers to, to provide the read aloud for about 30 minutes, and then the, every day the activity was exactly the same. It was like a pre-reading, and it could be, for example, uh, even a review from what they had read before, to, to kind of get them started. Then there was a during reading activity with uh, specific guided questions. And then there was the after reading where students would engage and do, um, you know, do a drawing of, for example, an animal or uh, write sentences about what happened next or the first or, or draw uh, um, what they thought happened in the story. So there was, and this was the structure for every um, single session. And, uh, Lena, I, I don't know if you have anything else that's... Uh... Yeah, you're explaining it um, beautifully. The 30 minutes, we try to have teachers do before, during, and after within the 30, um, which which was 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 a lot. But the, but with tight instruction, right, and instructional dynamics, you're, you're able to do it. Um, and then for that during reading piece, I think what Doris, I want to just reinforce what she was saying is so important, is that we had these consistent frameworks that were applied to narrative text and expository text. And those frameworks were linked to the text structure. Um, and so that provided the, um, it, it, what we're saying, a frame for teachers then during reading to really um, ask and answer questions that related to that text structure. So students over time would always be able to ask if you're reading an information text, for example, what makes a reptile a reptile? Same question. What makes a mammal a mammal? What makes a um, you know a insect an insect? So you are you when you have that framework, you're really able to work within it and help kids expand um, knowledge. It sounds like it's almost a Swiss Army knife approach of where you're including lots of you know research supported practices where we know that teaching text structures. That's something that there's there's been a couple meta analyses in the last year showing that. Teaching text structure improves comprehension outcomes, um, where you're providing strategy instruction during it. You're using the the nonfiction text to sort of help drive the background knowledge and comprehension for the fiction text. All of those sort of feed in together. If a teacher could latch onto that and, and have that consistent structure, that it's something that it's 
um, over time gets fairly consistent for the teacher so they're not having to reinvent the wheel every day but then sort of maximizes these instructional outcomes for yeah. for the students I love how you said that. I think it is, you know, strategically layered instruction. And what captures it for us is routines, routines. Basically, you begin to learn these set of routines you uh, implement before, a set of routines during, a set of routines after. And it really is building those instructional routines um, over time. And then our, we saw with our teachers, they. Um, certainly develop fluency with those routines and in, in, in their instructional implementation. Yeah, and, and I want to add that it also helps students so much, you know, because then students don't have to guess what the teacher is trying to convey or trying to find out, you know, but they know exactly. So there is not a kind of explanation time. Sometimes, you know, when a teacher comes up with a, a new question, you spend a lot of time uh, trying to explain the question and Sometimes not every student understands it or hears it, and so uh, it becomes like a lot of students start feeling a bit lost about what they have to do, and they, what they do is they turn to their friends and try to copy what they are doing, but not really understanding. You know? And then with this very, I think this simple structure, everybody knew what they had to do, and what they had to focus on was more on their own learning. And so we uh, noticed, and of course this is just kind of anecdotally, but uh, uh, much less kind of like, children relying on their friends or on their buddies to, to know what's going on. And it was more like, I mean, they knew exactly what was going on. So then everyone can focus on the content. No one's worried about the directions or, you know, everyone just, everyone can focus on the content, teacher and students. You chose to audio record some of the lessons that teachers delivered. Why did you do that? And what information did that give you? Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Uh, that. So, so when, for this particular study, what we did was we asked teachers in the, uh, in the control condition as well as the treatment condition to teach a specific book for two weeks. I mean, two books for two weeks so that we could uh, then uh, really analyze the, um, the delivery of the instruction in the control and in the treatment group with the same content. So that way there was not like, oh, because this book is easier to read or to engage children, you would get better results than with another book that perhaps a control teacher would have chosen. So the content when we analyzed the data was the same. And then the reason we wanted to uh, report teachers was because we wanted to look a little bit deeper into the quality of the instruction. We wanted to see how quality, in, in addition to the ultimate implementation, whether that made a difference or not in um, in outcomes for children. That's super interesting. So what, you know, so the teachers are using the, the same text, they're, they're teaching the same text. What difference does, did you find between those audio recordings of the teachers that just have been given the text and said, here's, you know, teach them uh, however you want versus the ones where they were using your, your structured, you know, read aloud intervention? What were the differences? Yeah. So, yeah, so this is what uh, fascinated us from, from this study. And, I mean, first of all, you know, if we compare it to the uh, other study that was done in 2013 by Scott Baker and um, Lena and Hank and, and others, was that uh, we got the same results or similar results in vocabulary growth. So, based on our measure of vocabulary, uh, students uh, in the treatment group improved uh, significantly in vocabulary compared to students in the control group. And that was the same finding in the 2013 study. Um, the effect size was about 0.4, so kind of uh, in the moderate range. But then we didn't, uh, then 
in terms of the other measures that we have, which were linguistic comprehension um, uh, and retelling, um, story retelling, and then also um, summarizing the information of the nonfiction books, we did not find any effects between the control and the treatment group in this in this specific study. And so uh, we decided, well, let's look deeper into the recordings that we have and see what else we can find. And so based on what uh, uh, recommended features of explicit instruction are, and uh, from, you know, what Lena was mentioning before, Cohen et al. and others that have, uh, Isabel Beck and McCowan, that have looked into quality of instruction or recommended features of instruction, we um, started analyzing that data from those recordings and we found that there was an interaction between uh, treatment and a recommended features of instruction or quality of instruction. So, in other words, teachers who implemented the program better, in, teachers in the treatment group implemented the program better, got better results, or their students got better results on uh, outcomes on all the measures, on listening comprehension, on retail, on, on summarizing and vocabulary, compared to teachers who implemented the um, the program with fidelity, but kind of let's say with lower quality or with less less quality or less uh, features of recommended instruction. And although this is not like a causal relation, like we cannot say that uh, necessarily the program improved the quality of the instruction, like you know, but but what it does tell us is that. You know, even if you have a strong program like this one, uh, quality of instruction does matter. So whatever teachers do in the classroom really makes a difference. And uh, and those uh, in, in in this particular study, we were able to capture that a little bit closer. You know, we need to research it more, but it was uh, very exciting to find out that. I'm so glad that you explained those interaction effects. Uh, that's a very statistical term, but it but it really matters with what we're talking about here. So what the interaction here is saying is, so um, so outside of the recordings, you know, you guys did statistical analyses on these students, you know, with their scores before the treatment and then after. And, and what an interaction effect means is that um, there is something besides the instruction that's influencing outcomes. And so mm -hmm. what you found was there was variations across teachers, that the teachers that taught better, not just we're not just talking program fidelity there, although I'm sure the fidelity mattered, but teachers who were able to implement fidelity and teach it better than perhaps teachers that use fidelity and just didn't quite have as tight instruction, that they had different outcomes. And that's, I think that speaks to, um, number one, I mean, just first having high quality uh, instructional materials, but then also that in the end, it's it's the teacher that that teaches. And so our job to help arm teachers with great instructional practices and know what research says for for important instruction. But, you know, also that's kind of a something when, when you scale up a study that you start to have these these different effects. And I think that's something that I've noticed with other studies where they, where it's something gets scaled up and those effect sizes get a little bit smaller, but then you begin to have these interaction effects where, uh, you know, the teachers that teach it better have the better outcomes. Yeah, it was fascinating for us to, to see those outcomes and really underscores good teaching matters. High quality instruction matters, makes a difference. And, and, and in this context, we're talking about read alouds. So we've already touched on this a little bit, uh, but what were how were some of the findings from this particular study different from Baker and colleagues 2013? And then 
maybe we could go a little bit deeper about why why you, why you hypothesize the the outcomes were slightly different. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so we, as as Doris said, um, our first study, um, our earlier study, showed we would call them substantive effects on vocabulary. We we saw a very high effect um, in terms of vocabulary outcomes um, for students who participated in our read aloud intervention. Um, but in our replication, we didn't see, we saw effects, we saw positive outcomes. So that's important, um, but we just didn't see it at the level um, that we did in that first study for vocabulary. And um, Jake, as you're saying, I think as you scale up a study, um, those sometimes those whopping substantive effects become uh, dampened um, down. So there's still positive effects, but now we might have a more realistic um, perspective because of the increased sample size in this case of what those impacts might be. Um, so that's one thing we saw with vocabulary. The other two is very interesting to us, and Doris also alluded to that. It's that in our first study, um, our earlier one, we saw an impact on, on comprehension specific, um, specifically in how students were able to retell narrative text. Um, and, the, and then in the, the second study, our replication, we, we didn't see any um, effects on comprehension and retelling. Um, and so, as Doris said, we look further um, to, to determine the uh, you know, uh, level of interaction and, and, just, and we discussed that. But one of the things we wanted to do is speculate why that might be. So yes, we increased our sample size, but also our sample, and this is our speculation, was very different than our first, our first study. So we had a very diverse Sample. Um, we had a sample that we we were drawing from, for example, Title I schools, where free and re reduced lunch was very important um, within that context. And so, you have uh, an increasingly diverse sample, but also, as Laura, uh, as Doris discussed when we um, talked about our, our participants, a fairly large size of English language learners in the sample. And so when you look at that sample specifically, and this links us back to where we, we started our discussion, you have students who may, um, may not necessarily be very proficient with oral language. And so our, our hypothesis, our speculation is that those differences in oral language um, really make a difference. Um, and so we may not have seen the outcome in this particular case um, with, with our relatively short implementation because of the differences related to oral language. And so as researchers, uh, we, do, we do take that next step and, and start to speculate about where, where we go from there. <laughs> and so within the context of, of, of this, we're thinking about a, a, you know, a study implemented in a whole class context. Um, and so we thought as we take next steps in our research, what about really looking at that oral language piece in more detail? What about potentially doing some small group instruction around um, oral language and seeing, um, seeing if that uh, provides additional support? Or impact, and that's really where I, I guess our research is landing currently. Is that is that's we we are looking at next steps related to that oral language piece. So it sounds like that with that more diverse population, there needed there there are things that sort of have to happen before comprehension can happen. That there has to be, uh, you know, sound oral language foundation, and then vocabulary 
And those things are sort of influence the comprehension outcomes. So you might not have had comprehension outcomes now, but perhaps in that sample that there's these distal comprehension outcomes because you gave them a more sound oral language foundation of vocabulary that, you know, beyond, you know, two years, three years down the road, they're going to have better comprehension outcomes than otherwise. And that's, and that's tricky to measure in your, you know, unless you're doing something longitudinal, you know, that we have to remember that these things sometimes take time. And, um, but I'm sure, you know, where you, where the finding of the interaction effect that the teachers that taught it better, you know, I'm sure that we can assume that that also, you know, translates to higher comprehension outcomes, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that there wasn't that we're saying there, there was no comprehension. It's just that exactly. it's a little bit nuanced. And that's, um, you know, that's important. Remember that these things aren't cut and dry when we when we get into the research. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and I want to point out that it's also not necessarily causally related. No, So we cannot say from this study that because teachers implemented better, that's why they got better outcomes. It's just was this interaction no, that they had in the treatment group, they, some, there was a, a diversity, no? I mean, variation in teaching and this variation in teaching appeared to be connected to improvements. No, but uh, because we didn't have like a pretest that showed us, well, how were all teachers uh, teaching before the intervention? We cannot make a causal relation, no? but but there's something there that uh, others have found too in their studies, vocabulary studies, like Sabina Neubauer and others, that uh, we might want to explore further to to see yes. how that is um, important, you know, how it affects kids. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Thank you for pointing that out. So let's let's bridge to practice here for a minute. Let's talk um, nuts and bolts. How teachers can improve their read aloud instructions. So. Um, you know, you have a teacher that's listened to this episode. Uh, they're interested in, in um, I said, uh, Swiss Army knife. You said strategically layered, which I, I'm sure is the more academic term. <laughs> so how, what would you recommend for teachers who already do read alouds and they just want to take it to that next level to help support their students? One we've talked about, I think to really um, ratchet up a, a read aloud, I think many teachers do this, but I think it's the attention to before, during, and after. A read aloud is not just the during reading piece of the, the reading aloud itself. It is attention to what you do before it and also after. And I think building those routines, those instructional routines within that context are, are really important. The second one, um, it's just a, a, a strategy that our teachers used, and I think it, um, has tremendous, uh, I would say, deep implication for instruction um, and comprehension. And that is before reading a text, always ask students what type of text it is. So are we reading an information book or a storybook today? Or are we reading a fiction or a nonfiction book today? Because making that decision upfront always dictates your entire comprehension process. So if I don't decide or just have that frame um, that I'm going to be listening to a a storybook, you know, I have nothing to anchor my comprehension on. 
But if I decide it's a story <laughs> and I know it's going to be a story, I now have a story grammar to follow. And so I now know I'm listening for a main character. I need to find out what's going to happen first in the story. So that decision up front all the time is a really big tip. And it's such an easy thing to do. Um, so you could, uh, you know, listen to this podcast now, the door apply um, that just ask up front all the time is routine. What are you reading information or storybook or fiction or nonfiction? And then my, my third is, I think we found that there was really an important effectiveness for what you do after reading. And I, I, you know, I think it's in our nature to shut the book and move on <laughs> to the next thing. But to pause there and really center your conversation around two main things. One is vocabulary. We really want to, uh, you know, teachers to emphasize key vocabulary. And as you end that read aloud, a reference back to one or two key words um, is important. And, and then the, the second is take the time to practice retelling. So take the time to practice retelling, um, which is essentially the summarization, but retelling for little kids. Um, and the retelling allows students to practice that oral language. It allows them to use the vocabulary words. It allows them to uh, reconstruct the, the text based on meaning. So it's really a powerful piece. So, so my, my third tip is, is don't, don't shut the book and move on and take, a, take some time to do the after reading instruction. Yeah, I, I also would, would add that for classrooms that are very diverse, particularly starting readers or English learners, to try and maybe do a small group instruction of the book before the teacher teaches it in the whole group. Because that way, what we want is students who are also maybe who have low language or um, who are English learners, they can participate during the whole group activities. So uh, sometimes we provide support to students, but after the lesson, after the whole group lesson, and so students are lost during that tier one or whole group lesson. They don't know what's going on. So if we can try and prepare them with their potential questions, with their vocabulary, they will be much more active during the uh, instruction and during the whole group instruction. So that's, I think, is very important. Um, and then uh, the other one, just like following up from what Lena was saying, is like these structured questions. No, I really resonate to that, that um, in addition to what Lena was saying, know what type of structure does this book have? Is it fiction or nonfiction? Then also, okay, if, if that's the case, then what kind of questions are we anticipating that we want to know um, from the books? And that, uh, again, just helps not the, the teacher doesn't have to do anything because the question will be, always be the same. And so what she can do is react to what students are saying, you know, by adding vocabulary, by incorporating things that uh, kids maybe have learned in previous classes or in another content area, and, uh, and build their, um, uh, their answers you know, to make them more rich and, uh, and enhanced. Excellent. So it sounds like we've got five awesome takeaways here. Uh, one is really focusing on that before, uh, during, and after um, reading structure, and then uh, making sure that students know what type of text, you know, fiction, nonfiction, and then, uh, and I like that you mentioned that there's a story grammar that goes with that, that, you know, students can know if it's a fiction text, there's going to be the beginning, the rising action, the climax, and the resolution, they can sort of latch onto that. And then I'm sure as you get better at that, especially with the informational text, you can get into is this cause and effect, you know, chronological order, 
those sorts. And those might be a, a bit advanced, but at, at least that's something that start to build the foundation for that story grammar. And then after reading, focusing on vocabulary, what were some key, you know, sort of just latch key vocabulary words that help really open up the text and then, uh, you know, retell or building a really accurate construction of, of what happened. And then uh, from Dr. Baker, you mentioned um, small group front loading for English language learners or any other student that they might need just a little bit more before the read aloud in order to get the most out of it. Uh, and then being very particular with with structuring the questions and making sure those questions are, are sort of high yield, higher depth of knowledge that can help still drive that con constructing of, of knowledge. Did I catch all five? Yes. Okay, excellent. Yeah. So will yeah. these, you know, recommendations vary for, you know, younger grades? This was, you know, first grade that we're talking about. If we went kindergarten or preschool or second or third or fourth grade, how might these shift as we as we sort of go on the grade spectrum? What a, yeah, great question to think about. I, I think the overall structure is, is really the same, and it's really the developmental or grade level application that might change. Um, and so uh, we've had experience implementing in, in the early grades of K-1-2, um, and, and, and really all, um, all the strategies we've talked about apply there. Um, working up the grade um, levels, essentially the, the text structure becomes more complex, so your strategies become more, more complex. Um, and your example of, of, of for a story or narrative text specifically, the story grammar um, increases in complexity. So at a K-1-2 level, you're looking at beginning, middle, and end main character. And as you get into the upper grades, as you, you your example is perfect, you're looking at um, theme, you're looking at plot episodes, or maybe even multiple plot episodes. It just it expands in sophistication. Same with expository text in our younger grades, we stick to what are you gonna learn? So we're about, when we access an informational or expository text, nonfiction text, we're looking at how, what, what are we learning from it? And as Doris has talked about, using a consistent questioning framework to always ask the same questions. I mean, uh, when we work within the context of animals, we're asking the, the who, what, where, when, why questions that deal with those specific animal types. Across uh, grade levels, you are increasing um, the, the application to different types of informational text. Um, so you set us up perfectly for, 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 for talking about that. But, but I think the message is it's, it's, it is generalizable and applicable across, across grades. It's just how you're applying it. Yeah, I definitely agree with Nina. And talking a little bit about uh, you know quality of instruction or instruction matters is is how teachers are going to take their responses that students give in the upper grades and enrich them. Now, so for example, for a first grader, um, you know maybe just describing the character as uh, you know young, it's a girl. Uh, you know, lives in a house with her family, whatever. Uh, it's very different than when it's the same character, but it's worth you asking this question for to a fourth grader. It could even be the same book, I think. And uh, uh, you know, you would expect more adjectives, more descriptions, more uh, kind of like background knowledge based on um, what students are um, have experienced. And so there is where you want the teacher not to not be satisfied with a simple answer, which fourth graders could probably say and get away with it, but uh, dig deeper into it, you know? So uh, the question is the same, but how you say it and the type of words you use, 
will be more, much more sophisticated, and that's what uh, we want teachers to make sure they um, they they uh, they insist on that and they uh, capture that you know, from from students and, and provide them with the vocabulary if necessary. Thank you both very much for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast today. I, the last question I ask is always my favorite favorite question. So perhaps I'll ask you, Dr. Baker, first, and then after I'll ask Dr. Santoro. So, Dr. Baker, what do you think it means to be a great teacher? Well, I think that uh, you know it has a lot of what we just talked about. You no, know, like uh, really thinking about a structure, really thinking about a goal. What is it that you want to achieve with this? Um, uh, instruction that you're giving and how does it tie to everything else that you're doing so that it's not something individual that you're doing one day, pick up a book, but you kind of like connect it to other things that you're doing in the classroom. And it can be in math, in science, in social studies, in writing, reading, you know. Uh, so, that, so that's really important. The other one I think is to also get to know the, your students, like really understand them, who they are, where they come from, what are kind of the struggles they might be having academically and behaviorally so that you can kind of address that from the start and, and really take that into account because it does make a difference um, with the students, uh, who the student you have. And the third one is, is never forget that vocabulary is important and it has to start really early. You know? uh, vocabulary is something that we sometimes tend to teach after second grade when we feel like, okay, students now can read a book, so now we can focus on vocabulary comprehension. But Vocabulary comprehension really should start very early, and even in preschool, no, and um, and then build from there. So um, I think those would be like kind of my four <laughs> main uh, points for uh, a high quality teacher. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Baker. Dr. Santoro, what do you think makes a great teacher? Oh gosh, I think great teachers love teaching and they love learning and um, reaching students. So very much what Doris says about, you know, you get an opportunity to change something in the life of a student from knowledge skills or um, something they have never done before. It's just so powerful. And along that, so adding to just like loving teaching and learning, I, I add that, um, the delivery of instruction. That delivery of instruction is is high quality, um, dynamically responsive, so always attending to the learning needs of kids. Um, and so that instructional delivery is done with quality. So love what you do and deliver it with uh, quality so that good teaching really matters. I love that. Dr. Doris Baker and Dr. Lena Santoro, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. It was a pleasure. A great big thank you to Dr. Baker and Dr. Santoro for joining us on that discuss for that discussion today. I learned a ton from talking with them. I want to point out to look at the show notes for additional resources that these two have produced. First, there's a link to the University of Oregon website where you can actually purchase the materials that were developed in conjunction with this study. There's also other articles and publications uh, that I've posted on there from Dr. Baker and Dr. Santoro on Read Aloud, so go there to make sure to check those out. So let's get on to my two cents. First, let's talk for a second about programs and teachers. Broadly speaking, we could summarize Dr. Baker and Dr. Santoro's Findings from this and their previous study as, one, the group that taught using the read-aloud intervention performed better than the group that did not, 
And, and remember that this, this read aloud instruction was only 30 minutes per day. And two, within the group that taught using the read aloud instruction, the teachers who were more skilled performed better than the teachers who were less skilled. These findings might seem straightforward enough, but they do highlight a few important points to consider. Number one, high-quality, research-based programs can indeed support student literacy. And two, high-quality programs implemented by highly skilled teachers can support student literacy better. So my hypothesis about this goes back to what we talked about with Dr. Margaret Vaughn last winter. During instruction, teachers make so many split-second decisions, and these are decisions that aren't necessarily covered in the teacher's manual. Highly skilled teachers have a wealth of knowledge and experience to draw from when they make these effective decisions during instruction. So my major takeaway is that training a teacher to use a program is not the same as training a teacher in literacy pedagogy and practice. So teaching a teacher to use a program isn't the same as teaching them how to teach literacy. Teachers need both. A teacher needs a sound understanding of how to implement a high quality program and how, you know, what it affords and what it doesn't afford and how it's structured in order to teach it the best way possible. But a teacher also needs to have a sound working knowledge of what makes that program a high quality program to begin with. What literacy theories is it drawing from? What sort of research studies? What is its framework for teaching literacy? When a teacher has both of those, sound working knowledge of the program and also deep knowledge of literacy instruction and pedagogy, then that's when some really neat things can happen with instruction. So as educators, we should be seeking to create a virtuous cycle between highly effective teachers and high quality programs. So in sort of that same vein of, of high quality teachers, let's move on to my second scent. And, and again, that's probably just an extension of my first scent. And so in my second scent, I want to talk about uh, how do you use structural layering to use a read aloud in your classroom? So uh, during the interview, I called uh, their approach a Swiss Army knife approach, where they're using a little bit of vocabulary instruction and a little bit of text structure instruction and a little bit of before, during, and after. Um, they used KWL. Uh, they used strategy instruction and student retails, just a little bit of this and that to help students construct their working knowledge of the text and then integrate it with their background knowledge. And I hope you notice that, that the Swiss Army approach, Swiss Army knife approach or the structural layering approach was a really critical part of what made that intervention successful. So if you're wanting to include a high quality read aloud in your classroom, you could indeed also use some of these structural layering methods. Sometimes uh, during instruction, we focus really heavily on one thing for a period of time of day after day of our ELA instruction. That might be writing summaries or strategy instruction or building background knowledge, uh, you know, doing like character maps or story maps, things like that. But this layered approach is using various instructional practices that integrate with the read aloud depending on the day's reading. So one day it might be a teacher might be addressing text structure and key vocabulary. The other day they might be working really hard to make a, a good gist or using their background knowledge to help understand the story. 
But remember that these this intervention was short. I, the, the, the teachers that were using the read aloud instruction, the read aloud program, they were only doing it for 30 minutes a day. And this wasn't their main reading instruction. But even within that 30 minutes of using this, this stacked, layered approach of integrating different ways that we can help students construct knowledge and then integrate their knowledge, that these students were able to have better outcomes than the students who also had access to the same materials. The teachers had the same access, but did not receive a read aloud instruction uh, in the same way. So consider how you can layer different types of instruction and integrate it into your read aloud instruction to make it even just that much better. Thank you so much for joining me on the Teaching Literacy Podcast today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I learned a ton from it. If you appreciate what you've heard in this episode or in any other of the episodes that we've listened to, please share it with a colleague, especially as we're getting ready to start thinking about the new school year. My hope is that episodes from the show could help teachers teach literacy better within their classroom. Have a great rest of the summer, and until next time, let's still keep thinking about teaching literacy just a little bit better. Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better. <laughs>